Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Four days before his execution, Chang Sung Tech sat inside the Mansude Assembly Hall behind a wood-paneled desk flanked by hundreds of his fellow politicians and bureaucrats. Seated before him, behind an ornately carved dais, was his nephew and judge, Kim Jong-un. As Chang fidgeted in his chair, the Politburo issued its judgment. Chang pretended to uphold the party and leader, but was engrossed in such factional acts as dreaming different dreams and involving himself in double dealing behind the scene. Chang looked sullen. Two soldiers approached him, grabbed him up by the elbows, and escorted him out of the room. The 67-year-old official looked hunched and frail, as if on the verge of collapse. Within days... He would be dead. The so-called dreams and double dealings Uncle Chang committed were never specified. All we know is that Kim Jong-un considered him a threat. And some believe Kim Jong-nam factored into his death sentence. Chang Sung-tae clearly had a favorite nephew. He and Kim Jong-nam spoke on the phone regularly and shared common goals for the country. Chang reportedly wired money to his nephew in Macau. Some murmured that Chang was hoping to install Kim Jong-nam as the next leader. Others suggested that China was providing security for Kim Jong-nam as a favor to Uncle Chang, as a thank you for his Chinese-friendly policies. Few know what conversations were had in Beijing, but rumors have swirled that China was taking a close look at Kim Jong-nam just in case the incumbent leader needed to be, well, replaced. Kim Jong-nam was an obvious choice for that because, you know, he's known to be quite friendly to China. He was somebody, I think, that China felt could be counted on and was beholden to them. And that is why I think he was living in Macau as well, a Chinese territory, uh, a place where he could come and go easily, but under the protection of China. Even if China provided Kim Jong-nam with security, it didn't provide much support financially. Because shortly after Uncle Chang was dispatched from this planet with anti-aircraft guns, no less, Kim Jong-nam's lavish lifestyle began to flounder. The man who was accustomed to staying at five-star hotels and oceanside villas was now desperately reserving Airbnbs. Uh, another former school friend of Kim Jong-nam told me that Kim Jong-nam seemed to have been kind of cut off from the regime finances once Kim Jong-un took over. For reasons that aren't clear, the revenue stream Kim Jong-nam had secured running his gambling sites may have dried up. He was clearly working for a living, working for himself uh, and making money for himself. In the final years of his life, with Uncle Chang dead, Kim Jong-nam became increasingly desperate for cash. And just days before his assassination in February 2017, he took one of the biggest risks of his life, apparently in a bid to make much-needed money. He flew to Malaysia, away from the protection of his Chinese minders, and visited Langkawi, an archipelago known for its serene palm-dazzled islands, white sandy beaches, and turquoise waters. 
During his stay at a Westin hotel on Langkawi, security footage would catch Kim Jong-nam, backpack in tow, meeting a suspicious stranger. So some of the last footage of Kim Jong-nam showed him in a hotel elevator with a man of Asian ethnicity. The man's identity is a mystery. But according to South Korea's intelligence agency, the man was not some childhood friend from Switzerland, nor a friendly comrade from back home, nor even one of Kim Jong-nam's gambling clients. He was American, and he worked for the CIA. I'm Eden Lee. In this episode, we delve into the twisted relationship between Kim Jong-nam, the United States, and North Korea. And a big question, was Kim Jong-nam an American asset? And if so, did the U.S. government know what could happen to him? The regime has every interest to keep tabs on his brother. North Korea has chemical weapons capability, but the willingness to use uh, is there. Kim Jong-nam had been acting as an informant to the CIA, giving them information, what he knew about Kim Jong-un and the regime. This is Big Brother. In North Korea, there may be no worse crime than working with or being sympathetic to the Americans. And that's because the United States, in North Korea's eyes, is public enemy number one. The DPRK's behavior, its obsession with weapons of mass destruction, its devotion to military first policy, even the way it killed Kim Jong-nam, all tie into the country's tense relationship with the U.S. But to understand why, we have to go back to June 1950, the outbreak of the Korean War. I would say with just the slightest exaggeration that the Korean War launched modern international history. As Dr. Lee explains, the Korean War transformed the United Nations from a paper organization into a global force. It's why American troops are stationed at bases in more than 70 foreign countries. And it deepened the tensions that would come to define the Cold War. The Korean War was deeply consequential, and yet the conflict would be largely hidden from the American public. The Korean War has long been dubbed in the United States as the Forgotten War. But for the 500,000 Korean War veterans still alive today, from the various countries that fought in it, very little has been forgotten, especially in Korea. The war touched upon the lives of the vast majority of the people in both South Korea and North Korea in a tragic, negative way. Virtually every Korean had a family member or relative who was maimed or killed or lost. Over 15% of North Korean civilians were sacrificed. 10 million people probably displaced from home. Hundreds of thousands of orphans. So the death toll and the suffering, and it's one relevant factor metric, of course, but of course, that doesn't tell the entire story. That entire story really starts with the indiscriminate splitting of the Korean peninsula at the 38th parallel, the line dividing north and south. So late night on August 10th, 1945, the United States came up with a plan for temporarily dividing Korea at the halfway, the midway point at the 38th parallel to block further advancement of the Soviet troops. So this was a proposal submitted by the United States to Stalin. North and South Korea, in other words, were inventions of other nations. No Koreans had a seat at the table when their homeland was divided. The haphazard manner in which the partitioning of the Korean peninsula came to take place is a source of ire for the people of Korea. But the initially, the intention was to save at least half a loaf, half of the Korean peninsula, 
to put South Korea under the U.S. sphere of influence. The line, however, was not something Koreans on either side recognized, culturally or politically. So the United States and Soviet Union made a promise. The division would be temporary. In 1948, the United Nations tried to erase the dividing line and unite the peninsula under one government with an election. But when it came time to vote, the Soviet Union refused to let the UN Commission cross into North Korea. Locked out of the North, the UN decided to hold assembly elections anyway, but only in the South. And with that, the government of South Korea was officially established, and any chance of uniting the peninsula peacefully vanished. And then, two years later, in June 1950, the Korean War began. Under the strangest of circumstances, Koreans invaded Korea with the goal of unifying Korea. There's no doubt who started it. Kim Il-sung and the Communist North. But American officials refused to believe the North Korean leader was actually responsible. When news of the North Korean invasion of South Korea broke, President Truman himself almost immediately decided to take action. Due to a misreading of the situation, due to seeing North Korea's invasion of the South as Stalin and Mao's ploy, viewing the North Korean leader Kim Il-sung as a mere puppet to Stalin and Mao. In fact, a high-ranking State Department official said that the relationship between Stalin and Kim Il-sung is exactly the same as that between Walt Disney and Donald Duck. Kim Il-sung is not his own man. Stalin is pulling the strings. In an effort to beat back the attack, the United Nations poured troops into the peninsula. All for what? out of misreading the situation. Within weeks, North Korea had nearly taken over the entire South Korean peninsula. But with the backing of the UN, the South Korean military would soon receive international support. 16 countries, including Turkey and Ethiopia, deployed military troops. 39 other countries gave financial and material support. But it was the United States that provided the bulk of foreign manpower and weaponry. The UN forces, led by General Douglas MacArthur, slowly began to beat back the northern invasion. Only five years removed from World War II, American officials chose a playbook that had successfully repelled Imperial Japan, air power. The Air Force weakened the North Korean advance by targeting the military's rear, disabling the chain of troops in charge of supplying the front with ammo, gasoline, and food. They also heavily targeted North Korean cities. This strategy, while effective, would lead to the most destructive bombing campaign in military history. As the U.S. Secretary of Defense Robert Lovett explained, If we keep on tearing the place apart, we can make it a most unpopular affair for the North Koreans. We ought to go right ahead. The extent of the bombing was unimaginable. North Korea was flattened. More than 85% of the country's buildings were destroyed. Some cities, like Sinaju, were transformed into rubble. American pilots also targeted irrigation dams that had provided water for three quarters of the country's crops. Floodwaters destroyed swaths of farmland. Suffering ensued. With their cities gone, millions of North Koreans resorted to living underground. And the hellfire continued with a new lethal innovation that had been tested in World War II, but now in the Korean War made its real debut. Napalm. This is what a napalm bomb does. When it hits, its searing flame spreads for hundreds of feet. The infantrymen then take over and advance up the crucial ridge. Despite the pounding of red bunkers, it is a harrowing foot-by-foot operation. Deep in their trenches, there are still plenty of the enemy left to pour fire into the attackers. But the flamethrower silences them 
and a smokescreen masks the attack. Grim is the word for Korea. Napalm charred the countryside and the people in it. From June to October 1950, the U.S. would drop more than 866,000 gallons of napalm on North Korea. By the war's end, more napalm was dropped on the DPRK than any other nation in history, Vietnam included. To be clear, we're not trying to stoke sympathy for the North Korean regime, nor to excuse the terrible atrocities it has committed, both during a war it started and in the decades since. But the widespread bombing of North Korea is vital to understanding the country's attitude toward the United States. Because while the Korean War might be forgotten in the U.S., in the DPRK, the air bombardment is taught in every school. Today, most of North Korea's anti-American propaganda is built on easily disproved lies. But the difficult truth is that the foundation, the spark, for much of this anti-Americanism, according to journalist Blaine Hardin, is, quote, rooted in a fact-based narrative, one that North Korea obsessively remembers. That lingering resentment is just one of many unintended consequences. Another is North Korea's obsession with weapons of mass destruction. Because in late 1950, the UN forces did more than just repel North Korean attacks. They crossed the 38th parallel with the goal of unifying Korea for the South. But on the other side, a Goliath was waiting. China kept issuing threats. If you enter North Korean territory, if you approach our border, we will fight you. We will send troops. And MacArthur dismissed those Chinese threats as just empty threats. But MacArthur was wrong. China did step in. Not wanting Western soldiers anywhere near its border, China would send more than 3 million people to North Korea's aid. General Douglas MacArthur, who believed he could win the war with, quote, one hand tied behind his back, argued that the best way to cut off the Chinese advance was to drop nuclear weapons. In Korea, I visualize a cul-de-sac. I see here a unique use for the atomic bomb to strike a blocking blow. At the Pentagon, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff rejected MacArthur's proposal. But MacArthur pushed and pushed and pushed again. He'd request a total of 26 atomic bombs. And although those requests were denied, he would remain a shameless advocate for nuclear attack. I would have dropped between 30 and 50 atomic bombs strung across the neck of Manchuria. The bomb wasn't MacArthur's only go-to. He also suggested releasing chemical weapons, arguing that the military should spread radioactive waste across the border, creating a chemical fence that would keep communist ground troops barricaded up north. Instead, President Harry Truman would fire him for insubordination. But MacArthur's replacement, General Matthew Ridgway, was also a fan of nuclear weapons he would request 38 atomic bombs. The Pentagon did not approve. It did, however, later approve a request from the Joint Chiefs of Staff who, according to Korean War scholar Bruce Cummings, ordered, quote, atomic retaliation against Manchurian bases if large numbers of new troops came into fighting. By 1951, the possibility of a nuclear attack on North Korea seemed so inevitable that Air Force pilots started flying practice runs, dropping dummy bombs on would-be targets. By the time the armistice was signed in 1953, with both sides effectively agreeing to a stalemate, North Korean civilians and leaders were paranoid about the threat of nuclear annihilation, and that paranoia would only grow. By 1967, the United States was storing approximately 950 nuclear warheads in South Korea. The United States removed the last of these weapons from the peninsula in 1991. But to this day, submarines and stations nearby provide a so-called nuclear umbrella. And that fact 
has fueled North Korea's decision making. It isn't irrational for North Korea to think it might need um, greater security. That again is Jenny Town of the Simpson Center. A nuclear attack is possible. They they don't rule it out. It's you know during the Korean War, um, the U.S. did threaten to use nuclear weapons. And there have been in the past U.S. nuclear weapons, you know, stationed in South Korea. And there is the U.S. nuclear umbrella, right? So there are reasons. It's a small country in the middle of economic and political giants. Um, and it's a country that doesn't necessarily have any real allies. It, you know, it has a relationship with the Chinese, a relationship with the Russians. Does it really trust that, you know, in the case of something happening, not really. And you're looking at a, a, a nuclear dense region as well, right? China has nuclear weapons, Russia has nuclear weapons, US has nuclear weapons, and South Korea and Japan have nuclear weapons by default. So there is a sense of insecurity that drives a lot of their decisions. The North Koreans look at the history, um, and especially you know from the Korean War on, and say that it's possible. No matter where you go in Korea, North or South, you cannot escape the dynamics created by the Korean War and the antagonistic relationship that followed. It's one of the reasons North Korea is constantly rattling its saber, trying to look tough. It's one of the reasons Kim Il-sung embraced Chuche, later investing obscene portions of his country's GDP to build up one of the world's largest militaries. And it's why North Korea has worked so hard to develop its own deterrent, a deterrent that Kim Jong-nam was well aware of. Because remember his rendezvous in Langkawi, Malaysia? A few days after that hotel meeting with an American spy, Kim Jong-nam would try to leave the country with multiple vials of an antidote designed to combat the toxic nerve agent VX. Kim Jong-nam knew something, and that's this. When Western powers began installing nuclear weapons in South Korea, the DPRK, then too poor to counteract the arsenal with atomic bombs of its own, came up with a strategy. One, they believed, that could neuter the U.S.'s atomic power. North Korea would build a stockpile of chemical weapons so large it could end all human life as we know it. And North Korea wouldn't be afraid to use it. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here. In the 1950s, as blood and bombs spilled over the Korean peninsula, chemists in the United Kingdom were waging a very different kind of battle against insects. The pesticide industry was booming. And Dr. Ranji Ghosh, 
a chemist working for Imperial Chemical Industries in Gellet Hill, England, was looking for chemicals that could kill common pests, specifically mites. Ghosh was directed to look closely at secret research on a group of toxic pesticides called G-agents, which had been developed by German scientists during the 1930s. Ghosh went to work, and in 1952, at the height of the Korean War, he and a fellow chemist named J.F. Newman discovered a substance, an organophosphate ester of substitute aminoethanethiol, called amiton. The men celebrated the discovery. Ghosh was convinced he had found the pesticide to end all pesticides. Advertisers believed it too. By 1954, Amiton was being marketed across the United Kingdom as the next great bug killer. But within three years, it would be pulled off the shelves. Turns out, Amiton was much more than an insecticide. It was a nerve agent. So, Ghosh went back to work. He continued trying to turn the Nazi G-agents into effective and safe pesticides. But every time he attempted to discover a less toxic substance, he failed. In fact, each new advancement seemed to make the G-agents more toxic. The most noxious, most deadly, most terrifying agent Ghosh concocted would be so potent that only a few milligrams were needed to kill a human. It would be named Venomous Agent X. Today, it's just called VX. And that is where our stories collide. Because during the Korean War, as American planes rained bombs and bullets on North Korean cities, Kim Il-sung directed his military to build a labyrinth of underground tunnels and bunkers for protection. North Korea hasn't stopped digging since. You might remember our friend, historian Benjamin Young. They remembered the years of the U.S. air bombardment. And so there's a reason why North Korea has built so many of its military facilities under the ground in uh, mountainous ravines, under mountains. They have a massive tunnel system. So North Korea's history has made it into this very deeply paranoid, uh, almost subterranean system. Today, it's estimated that North Korea has up to 15,000 underground layers, acting as aircraft hangars, material depots, and weapons storage facilities. It's believed the majority of the country's military supplies are protected by these underground bunkers. I think that one day perhaps the regime will collapse and we'll go there and we'll see just how huge their tunnel system was underneath the ground and just how prepared they were for any sort of air bombardment. And that might be one of the secrets that Kim Jong-nam was harboring. As the son of the dear leader, he knew that these underground cities held North Korea's war chests of chemical weapons, including what may be the largest stockpile of VX nerve agent in the world. Today, North Korea's cache of chemical weapons is the world's third largest, lagging behind only the U.S. and Russia. The country is home to at least 11 chemical weapons facilities, almost all of them buried underground, that may produce and store up to 5,000 metric tons of these deadly agents. But truth be told, Nobody's certain how much they really have. North Korea has, um, you know, chemical weapons capability, the extent of which we don't really know, um, but the willingness to use uh, is there. We do, however, have a good idea of what's in North Korea's stockpile. Anthrax, smallpox, amiton, mustard gas, sarin, the plague, and yes... VX agent, all of which are ready for their neighbors to the south or anyone else who messes with them near their turf. North Korea has the capability of attaching, you know, chemical weapons even to their short range ballistic missiles. Kim Il-sung was right to bet on chemical weapons. Chemical missiles are cheaper and potentially more lethal than nuclear warheads. 
It would only take one gallon of anthrax to end all human life. Indeed, for decades, this chemical stockpile has been a remarkable deterrent and a threatening bargaining chip. The U.S. won't use its nukes because that would compel the North to release its chemical weapons. And the North won't use its chemical weapons because that would compel the U.S. to use its nukes. It's led to a strategic standoff, a menacing game of chicken that allows North Korea to act belligerently with few consequences. Anything else would be catastrophic. In the 1990s, the Pentagon calculated the cost of a preemptive strike on North Korea. The results suggested that an attack would cost the U.S. more than a trillion dollars and require at least 100,000 body bags just for American troops alone. The potential loss of life in a second Korean conflict is, you know, millions of people. You have you have to remember that Seoul, the capital of South Korea, is only 30 miles away from the DMZ. Um, and about a quarter of the population lives there. Um, the response time that it takes to defend Seoul and the amount of damage that can be done very quickly is enormously high. This standoff has done more than preserve North Korea's existence. It's been a boon to the country's economy. It essentially uses weapons of mass destruction to extort foreign countries into lifting sanctions. It's also a valuable export. These chemical weapons can be shipped to rogue nations and terrorist groups. North Korea never really admits to having chemical weapons or actually using it. That, again, is Sue Kim, our ex-CIA analyst. But we know that it's actually tried to transfer chemical weapons to other countries. It's got the technology and the equipment, so it should be a concern. In fact, we know that North Korea exported chemical equipment to Syria Coincidentally, around the same time Syrian President Bashar al-Assad was gassing his own citizens. Meanwhile, in the U.S., there's practically no VX at all. In accordance with the Chemical Weapons Convention, an agreement North Korea disregards, the United States has destroyed almost all of its stock of VX. Today, one of America's largest collections of VX rockets sits rusting at the bottom of the ocean, just off the coast of Atlantic City, New Jersey. All of that's to say, while North Korea's nuclear weapons get most of the attention, perhaps it's time the country's chemical arsenal commands more of our scrutiny. We do talk constantly about the the Kim regime's missile development, the provocations. And those are all, of course, valid um, and credible security concerns. But the chemical warfare component, um, the, the cyber components, I think are just as deadly. And in some cases, even more deadly. The chemical weapons in combination with the ballistic missiles can lead to, I would say, much more you know, broader, far-reaching implications than we tend to think. Because of this perception that North Korea is backwards, because it's, it's poor, because we, it has a funny-looking leader, we tend to sort of dismiss a lot of these serious developments. I think it's an advantage for, for North Korea to, to play this on, all the while developing so many lethal options either to threaten the the international community to use it or to actually do try to use it. As the world found out in 2017, it's exactly the kind of weaponry one might use to quickly and silently kill a target in a very public place. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury 
the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Over the course of this podcast, we've gone over a plethora of theories of who killed Kim Jong-nam and why. Was it Kim Jong-un ensuring his throne wouldn't be jeopardized? Was it North Korean elites with an eye on his money-making software? Was it someone else in the regime who was threatened by his reform-minded ideas? To be honest, it may not just be one. Because Kim Jong-nam had evaded death before. In the early 2000s, somebody masterminded a plot to kill him in Austria. But that, as you may remember, was thwarted. And in 2010, shortly after Kim Jong-un was anointed successor, a North Korean spy paid a Chinese taxi driver to run over Kim Jong-nam with his car. The hit and run failed. And in 2012, after Yoji Komi published his tell-all book, Kim Jong-nam reportedly dodged another attack, the details of which are murky. But according to South Korean intelligence, the exiled prince was so distressed that he wrote a letter to his brother, pleading for his life. Please withdraw the order to punish me and my family. We have nowhere to hide. The only way to escape is to choose suicide. No matter who was trying to kill him, Kim Jong-nam knew the buck stopped with his brother. It seems Kim Jong-un didn't listen. And after Chang Sung-tek was killed, North Korean spies apparently began tailing Kim Jong-nam's movements. Even if Kim Jong-nam wanted to divorce himself from all of his connections in North Korea, it's not up to him. The regime, the, the Kim Jong-un leadership, has every interest to keep tabs on this, this brother. Uh, one, because, of course, he was family. And two, because of the potential threat that he would pose to Kim Jong-un as the leader. But actions, of course, can have unintended consequences. Just as the U.S. air bombardment and nuclear weapons inadvertently encourage North Korea to build tunnels and beef up on chemical weapons... Cutting off Kim Jong-nam's slush fund had unexpected results, too. Kim Jong-nam needed money. According to the Washington Post, the circumstances may have, quote, thrust Kim Jong-nam into the arms of foreign intelligence services as he tried to maintain his lifestyle. So a very reliable source, who I obviously can't name, told me that Kim Jong-nam had been providing intelligence to the CIA uh, while he was living in exile. I mean, we know that he was having to earn money for himself, that he wasn't um, the beneficiary of the regime's largesse anymore after Kim Jong-un took power. Um, so it stands, you know, it, it makes sense that he would be having to earn a living. And, you know, what is his most unique, marketable skill, I guess, is giving intelligence about, about Kim Jong-un and what's going on in North Korea. Journalists at the Wall Street Journal would later corroborate Fifield's reporting, suggesting that Jong-nam occasionally met CIA handlers in undisclosed locations in Malaysia and Singapore. He wasn't an agent or anything like that, but he was providing the information that he had. There have also been multiple reports since then that he was doing the same for South Korea, uh, also potentially Japan. To learn more, we prodded deeper with Sue Kim, hoping she'd spill some CIA secrets to us. She was, understandably, unable to confirm these suspicions. 
You know, I can't really comment about how the the Intel organizations obtain sources, so I'm not sure if I could help you with this question. But she was able to help provide us with a rationale if the CIA did, hypothetically, seek out Chengnam. There would be, I would say, great value because um, he has lived inside the country. Um, he is the son of Kim Jong-il. So he knows a lot about the system. He knows a lot about his family members. Um, he also knows how North Korea thinks, um, not just the leadership, but just North Korean, I would say, just the, the culture. So there would be a lot of value. And as much as there's a lot of value for foreign intel services, it's going to be an even greater threat for North Korea. We don't know what Kim Jong-nam told the CIA or how long he worked with them. All we know is that when Kim Jong-un was announced as successor, intelligence agencies had little information about him. They scrambled to learn anything they could. And what better source than his older brother? If the United States or South Korea were able to form a relationship with Kim Jong-nam, uh, think about how much more vulnerable uh, Kim Jong-un is going to feel about his decision-making, about his health, about his interesting quirks. And on the day Kim Jong-nam met with the suspected CIA agent in Langkawi, he took the man into his hotel room. There, it's believed he shared intelligence from his computer. We know this because days after Kim Jong-nam died, police found evidence that somebody had extracted extensive amounts of data with a USB drive. Cheongnam would also try to leave the country with four bricks of cash, each bundle amounting to around $30,000. And of course, those vials of antidote. Did Kim Jong-nam request this as payment? Or did the CIA offer it as an exchange? Honestly, nobody outside of those involved in the exchange knows. But we do know that Kim Jong-un's own spies may have been lurking in the shadows. The DPRK seemed to be aware of Cheongnam's itinerary. It's possible that, because they were tailing him, they knew that he was talking to American spies. And if that's true, that would present yet another reason for his half-brother to want him out of the picture. The CIA has a history of trying to take down foreign governments. It had tacitly endorsed the overthrow of Vietnam's prime minister, had helped organize the downfall of Chile's president, and had plotted to assassinate the Democratic Republic of Congo's first prime minister with a deadly virus. And of course, they famously tried, and failed, to poison Fidel Castro's cigars. So what was stopping the CIA from trying the same with Kim Jong-un? Su Kim is wary of how much Cheongnam's links with the agency might have influenced North Korea's decisions. I think it had much more to do with leadership insecurities. The fact that this, this oldest son was roaming about freely outside North Korea, getting to enjoy life, occasionally making these nonchalant comments about um, the North Korean system, the leadership, and, and you know, just being critical about the country— was not going to be, um, it wasn't going to reflect well, obviously, upon Kim Jong-un. North Korea watchers like Michael Madden also questioned whether the CIA connection was really all that significant. In his opinion, the prince was already a marked man. Disregard all of the stuff. Disregard all of the stuff about Kim Jong-nam being a source for foreign intelligence. That's just a really nice story for the news media. There'd be other motivations. But that begs the question, if there had been so many reasons to kill this man for decades now, why did it take so long for North Korea to pull the trigger? Madden suggests the reason Kim Jong-nam lived until 2017 was because he still had a number of advocates in the regime. There were other elites, people who considered Kim Jong-nam as family. There was Ryu Seo, a 90-something former hitman who was like a grandfather to the prince. He died in November 2015. A few months later, a former female comrade of Kim Il-sung, also close to Kim Jong-nam, died as well. By the end of 2016, 
Kim Jong-nam's circle of influence had either defected, were trapped in prison camps, or were buried underground. He no longer had friends or family to speak up for him. That's what put in motion, that's what put in motion Kim Jong-nam's assassination. I really think that's a huge factor in it. Madden might be onto something. Because in late 2016, North Korea's spies began hatching one of the most elaborate assassination plots ever devised. Since Kim Jong-nam enjoyed protection in China and was now spending time with foreign intelligence agents, the spies realized they had to be careful and strategic. So the hitmen likely decided that the best way to assassinate Kim Jong-nam was to kill him with a unique method. A method that was understated, bloodless, immediate, and immaculately lethal. Deep underground, stocked away in its hidden tunnels, North Korea had the perfect murder weapon on its hands. What we know about VX nerve agent comes largely thanks to research done by Dr. Van N. Sim, the former director of human research at Edgewood Arsenal in Maryland, where the U.S. Army used to test the effects of various chemical weapons. From 1948 to 1975, under the direction of Dr. Sim, more than 7,000 American service members were exposed to substances like ketamine, LSD, and nerve agents like VX. The Army believed live human experiments were important not only for defense, but for intelligence gathering. As Rafi Kachadurian writes in The New Yorker, doctors like Sim wanted to know, quote, could an operative dose an adversary with a handshake? So Dr. Sim started drugging American soldiers to find out. It sounds wildly unethical, and it is. But at the time, Dr. Sim's work was well regarded. He was a fearless researcher who always tested every chemical on himself before exposing any soldiers to it. When he first encountered VX in 1959, Sim intravenously infused small doses straight into his bloodstream. It nearly killed him. But it's thanks to Dr. Sim and the servicemen he experimented on that we now know what VX does to the human body and what the North Korean spies had planned for Kim Jong-nam. Upon contact, a small drop of VX quickly penetrates the skin and soaks into the bloodstream. And it wastes no time. The nerve agent blocks enzymes that help your muscles to relax. Within minutes, every muscle starts to contract uncontrollably. The eyes burn, the pupils narrow, sweat beads as vision blurs. The chest tightens, making breathing more and more difficult. Muscles twitch and tire as the nose runs and the mouth drools. Fluid floods the airway. Coughing fits sputter as the whole body clenches. After just 10 minutes, nerve endings scream with pain. The body can't handle this type of stimulation. So the muscles become exhausted and eventually they curl in on themselves, contracting to the point where the victim can no longer breathe. Consciousness fades, but not quickly enough. The victim's final thoughts will be consumed by one horrifying realization that their own body is suffocating them. And it doesn't take much VX to kill you. Dr. Sim concluded that it takes just 10 milligrams of VX, about the same as three raindrops, to kill a human. This has prompted the CDC to call VX, quote, the most potent of all nerve agents. Tasteless, odorless, and deadly in small, almost undetectable quantities, VX is also shockingly portable. It can be broken down into two harmless compounds, allowing two people to hold these separate ingredients in their hands with minimal risk to themselves. That is, until you mix the two compounds together. On the next 
and last episode of Big Brother. The elaborate means to which North Korea would go to wash its hands of an assassination of international proportions, and how Kim Jong Nam's death triggered a daring rescue. Big Brother is a production of School of Humans and iHeartRadio, and hosted by me, Eden Lee. Lucas Riley is our writer, co-director, and associate producer. Amelia Brock is our senior producer, co-director, and editor. Executive producers are Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, Elsie Crowley, and Jason English. Our fact checker is Aaron Blakemore. Music composed by Jason Todd Shannon and Tune Walders. Original score mix by Vic Stafford. Audio editing by Jesse Nyswanger. Sound design and mix by Harper W. Harris. Audio correction by Josh Fisher. Voice acting by Mark Chung. June Yoon, Ben Holst, Tiago Lima, and Mike Coscarelli. We'd like to acknowledge the work of Dr. Bruce Cummings. Special thanks to Ryan Murdoch and Will Pearson. Sound licensed from Critical Past. If you're enjoying the podcast, help us get the word out by leaving a rating in your favorite podcast app. Until next time, I'm Eden Lee. humans infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 infinity qx80 live march 20th from the edge at hudson yards in new york city featuring a performance by john batiste the all-new 2025 infinity qx80 is an suv designed to help every passenger feel just right be the first to see it march 20th at 7 p.m eastern only on iHeartRadio's youtube channel save the date at new-qx80.com Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable.